Sam and I's previous house, uh, we lived next door to a lady who could trace back her lineage back to South Asia. And she was one that really enjoyed the culinary delights of this region. And uh, there would be moments in her and her family's life when they would have a party. And so um, on those occasions, she would make up this vast amount of spicy snacks. Um, and uh, sometimes she would have some left over, and sometimes she would bring us the kind of the first fruits to Sam and I. And, and, and Sam wasn't so keen, but I grew to adore uh, these spicy uh, uh, snacks. They were fattening, they were just uh, dripping with goodness. And um, I quickly added them to my repertoire. So I like chocolate and crisps and sweets and these spicy snacks from next door. And I was quite happy to add them to the different things that I would scoff while e uh, watching TV. Why do I say this? Well, it is a very natural thing to copy the practices and ideas of others. We can come across other people and go, oh, that's a good idea. We're going to adopt that and do that. If you've ever been to River Camp, everyone else copies each other in how to keep their wellies dry, the insides of their tents dry, and uh, how to keep cool and everything else. And, and, and it's very natural for us to copy things. But um, people just don't do it with food and camping practices. People do it with language. People do it with fashion. Hats off to Martin and his socks and his sandals over there. Um, people do it with customs. People would do it with different days that we celebrate. And people most problematically do it with religion. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. says this, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Gerbeshites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do then. Break down the altars, smash the sacred stones, cut down their asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people Holy. Everyone say holy. holy. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. Everyone say chosen. chosen. Um, God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people. His, everyone say treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is a faithful God, keeping his covenants of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. So this is a really provocative passage. Yahweh, he kind of gives them the lowdown on what it means to be them. They have extensive blessings. God has kind of driven out these people that are occupying the promised land and they're going to get it. There are hard responsibilities. There are difficult questions to answer. And then there is this strange explanation of how they got to that place. How and why did God choose Israel? The chapter begins by saying the Jews are to regard themselves as unique. They are different. They are not just another tribe in the area. They are select and chosen and a treasured possession. And so they are not to integrate with the other groups. They are to keep themselves separate. It is okay for them to eat Hittite spicy snacks. You know, if the Hittites had a really good culinary delight, it would have been okay for the Israelites to adopt that. And if the Jebusites wore uh, uh, um, sort of particularly fashionable T-shirts or something, they're okay to adopt that. But when it comes to faith and religion, the Israelites were to keep them at arm's length. It was not okay to borrow from the religions of these other uh, tribes. And God really rams home in this passage uh, the detail behind their holiness, their distinctiveness and value. He he says, you have to bear this in mind. You have to keep it in uh, how you think and what you do with yourselves. Uh, To you and I, the wiping out of other tribes sounds really harsh and it often sounds incompatible with something that Jesus would teach later on. Um, But there is this threat of syncretism, which is where you adopt and absorb the practices of other. Um, On a very low level, I would suggest the sort of adoption of Halloween into a Christian life is is a demonstration of syncretism, where you take a value that's got nothing to do with Christianity and you draw it in and you practice it. And uh, God in the Old Testament was saying, we can't have that. You have got to be utterly different. And so there is this heady mixture of promises, of victory, of prestige in God's eyes... Um, And when you think of that, I am special, I am unique, no one else is like me, you can imagine a degree of arrogance creeping in. Look at me and how wonderfully snowflake-like I am. But God makes sure he nips it in the bud. Um, I mean, we we read out this uh, passage in Deuteronomy 7. He says, you are not chosen because... Uh, you've got nice hair or your teeth are perfect. You are not chosen because you are the really biggest tribe out there and you're just going to dominate everyone else. You are not going to uh, uh, be winners because of any quality you possess. Instead, God says, you are chosen because I have chosen you. 
And some of you go, wait a minute, that doesn't quite make sense. And God doubles down on this. He says, you are chosen because I love you. And because I've made an oath to look out for you. Now, last week, um, I suggested that permitting mystery in our faith was actually crucial. It's not something that we would do away with. You know, since the Enlightenment, we have seen the triumph of reason uh, and science and methodical thought um, sort of take down barrier after barrier. But in the case of faith and religion, there has to be room for mystery, for an admission that we don't know the answers This is where um, this impressive story of Job, he questions his sufferings because he knows that the uh, hardship he's going through isn't because of some sort of personal sin in his life. And ultimately God comes to him and says, you know what, I'm not going to give you an answer why you are going through all this hardship, but you need to know that I'm in charge, that I have made the decisions and that I am more than enough for answer to any of your questions. And there is this wonderful moment where Job goes, oh, you know, I don't need reason. I can tolerate mystery because God is in heaven and he is in charge of all things. And this passage in Deuteronomy endorses that. God says, I chose you, Israel, because I chose you, because I love you, because I chose you, Because I promised I would choose you and love you. And there is this kind of frustration of, well, why God? Why us? Why not the uh, Jebusites and the Hittites and the Hivites and all the other ites? Why not them? And God goes, because I chose. In my sovereignty and in my mystery and uh, for reasons I'm keeping to myself, I chose you. As we think on these things, as we um, ponder on the reason why the Israelites were selected, as we realise that they had nothing to recommend themselves, but God just bestowed his blessing on them anyway, I think we are better equipped now to move into the next moment of 1 Peter. So if you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Hopefully... This portion of your Bibles is starting to get well-thumbed and dirty. Um, Every new series, my Bible gets a little uh, dirtier and grubbier on those few pages. Um, So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, and it says this. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Hopefully, as as we read this together, you've picked up some of the things that are reminiscent of Deuteronomy chapter 7. You've picked up some ideas and thoughts that go, well, that isn't unique. That actually occurs in that earlier passage. And if you've noticed that, well done. I've kind of led you down the garden path and you found the uh, the right destination. 
Last week, we looked at how Jesus was the new temple of God. Jesus prophesied that the temple that the Jews were enjoying and worshipping uh, and uh, uh, sort of sacrificing, in, he said, that's going to die. That's going to be taken out. And sure enough, sort of in around 70 AD, uh, the Romans just took down Jerusalem because of a Jewish rebellion. And what Jesus said was going to happen did happen. But this would not matter. It mattered to the Jews who didn't recognise Jesus because their temple, this precious place of God, was gone. But to the Christians, to the uh, Jews that recognised Jesus, it no longer mattered because they knew that Jesus was the place to encounter God, that they didn't need to go to this building that Herod had built. They could come and worship in school halls and community centres and sort of revitalised sort of barns and farms. And there is a pattern, and you will see it again and again if you keep uh, um, alert. There is an ancient physical reality that prefigures what God is going to do in a fuller and spiritual sense. So you find... uh, The temple building is made and God says that's good, but then he demolishes it because Jesus is the new and bigger and fuller and more helpful temple. And the same happens with Israel. Because those that lean into Jesus as their saviour are the new Israel. Just as Jesus is in the new temple, uh, Christians are the new Israel. And suddenly, all the things that are talked about in the Old Testament and that are relating to this people that God says were not more numerous than any others, that weren't more oppressive and he chose them just because he loved them, that becomes us. And suddenly, we can read back into the Old Testament lots of helpful things about our own state before God. And some of you are like, well, why has he chosen you? Well, the answer... It's the same. Your heavenly Father has chosen you, chosen us to come together as a community because of his perfect sovereign will. Not because our teeth are straighter or our hair is glossier, not because we are cleverer or more holy, not because we are more self-controlled, not because we have any merit of ourselves, but because of God's sovereignty, because of his love and because of his choice. And Jesus tells us the same thing. Just in case... You think I'm making it up? Let's read the words of Jesus. John chapter 15. It says this. A couple of verses in John chapter 15. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. Everyone say friends. Friends. I've called you friends for everything I learned from the Father I've made to you, known to you. Verse 16. You did not choose me. I 
chose you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. So all those moments where you think that you decided to choose Jesus, Jesus says, no, that's not what happened. I chose you first. I put my spirit on you to prompt you. I caused you. I drew you in. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. And and Tim was reminding of that during worship, particularly with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, And then, this is my command. Love each other. And I thank Jesus for his simple and few words. When you think of some of the commands in the Old Testament, and then it all boils down to that. And you go, oh, I can, that's more manageable. I think I can get my head around that a little easier. We have a chosen status. And Jesus invites us to a place where we don't waste our time arguing about it or debating it or doubting it. Jesus says, I chose you. You are mine because sovereignly I've made a decision to pull you in. Enjoy it. Enjoy that place of being chosen. Enjoy that being that place of being the elect people of God. Now, there are some sort of further implications that Peter talks about. So he talks about being a chosen people, and then he talks about being a royal priesthood. And he says, we have now, because we are chosen, we have a very unique relationship with the King of Kings. Anyone here related to Queen Elizabeth? No? No? Um, What about King Gustav? No? No? Um, I don't know anyone here that's uh, related by sort of royal blood to any of the uh, uh, monarchies of uh, Europe or beyond. But Peter reminds us that we have been adopted into God's family and we are given this unprecedented access to the Lord of Lords. We may not be able to walk up to Buckingham Palace and sort of know the key code on the door and get in, but Peter reminds us that we have an even greater access and that is to the Lord of Lords. We stand tall and confident and peaceful, and restful, because we have a heritage that is incorruptible, just as the um, sort of next in line uh, to the throne will have a sort of confidence that they can look forward to some nice inheritance, apart from inheritance tax. Um, But we have a perfect inheritance, one that will never fade, never die, that will always be ours, and it will be the fulfilment of everything we've ever wanted, of every joy and every hope and every aspiration. We have an incorruptible inheritance and a perfect relationship with our Heavenly Father. We are already lottery winners of life. You don't need to go and buy a ticket. The guys I was standing next to in the line in co-op yesterday that were just spending obscene amounts of money on the scratch cards, and I was like, I've already won the lottery. I'm already chosen. I'm already selected. You 
the Euro millions do not cast a vague shadow on the inheritance that I can look forward to. And this means that we can live our lives as a blessing to others. How many people, when they say, oh, when I win the lottery and give my dear old mum uh, sort of enough to pay off her mortgage and get my brother a car, well, that is the position we're in. We just live life as a blessing to other people. We live our lives as a way of just being generous and open-hearted and kind because there is nothing anyone can do about our value. There is nothing anyone can do uh, about um, how other people see us. God sees us as chosen so we can be generous and open-handed and kind um, and nice. We will never have an ounce of our worth eroded just because other people don't see it. And we will never exhaust it. And so we can forgo our rights. We can let others go ahead as in the queue. There's no rush for us. We're the people of God. Well, what are they going to do? There, there is nothing, no scenario that will reduce that. We can give stuff away. We've got money to burn in that sense. We can love without calculation, working out how much it'll cost and whether we can afford it. We've got an abundance that we can enjoy. However, as we live these lives of love, there is also a rather harsh call to be separate. Everyone loves a sermon about saying, you know what, you need to love more, you need to be generous more, because we all kind of want to do that anyway. Who doesn't want to be more loving, more kind, more generous, uh, uh, more just sort of open-hearted and open-handed? But there is also this call to being separate. It was hard for the Israelites, and they failed again and again and again. And it is hard for Christians we do not indulge in the appetites of riffraff because we're royalty. We're different from them. They can play in the gutter and throw mud at each other, but that is not our destiny. That is not our behaviour. That is not our conduct. They may mess about with gossip and theft and deceit and blasphemy, they may indulge in every imaginable sexual immorality, but we are holy and royal and different. We are separate from them. Whatever the behaviour they get up to, that's for them. They're not royalty. They are riffraff. They have no eternal destiny, but we have been chosen. And so we do not get messed and mixed up in their dramas. We work and we speak and we play in a way that the world doesn't understand. So why don't you indulge all these things? Look at how consequence-free they are. And they said, no, we're different. We are spiritual royalty. We are set apart. That's always been the way. Peter then says why we are chosen 
by God? What is the purpose of it? Why, if we're not going to get an explanation of how God chose us and not others, what is the purpose in being chosen? What is the point? What is the function of a Christian? It is the very same that we find Jesus telling a man that he brings from darkness to light. If you've got a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 5. Hopefully the abandoned free chuckles of children don't annoy you because they'll be there for a while. Um, In Mark chapter 5, we're we're just joined to this episode just after Jesus has done this miracle in this man's life. Um, It it says this in uh, Mark chapter 5 verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home. Everyone say, go home. Go home. Go home to your own people and tell them. Everyone say, tell them. Tell them. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. This newly saved Gentile, this one who had been uh, uh, sort of oppressed by demonic activity in his life, uh, Jesus is about to go away. And he obviously and excitedly says, Jesus, I'm not ready yet. Um, I need some more discipleship groups. I need some more books on how to follow you. I need to see you do some more miracles. I want to see um, the supernatural happen again. I want to see other people freed and healed. And Jesus goes, of course, but that's not your job now. It's to go and tell. Go home and go and tell. Go and tell them of the goodness you have known because of God. Go and tell them of the mercy you have enjoyed. Go and tell them and they will be touched. And Peter reiterates this point. He says, we have a purpose as the royal priesthood. And what we are to do is we are to declare God aloud. We are to shout him out. I wonder, have you ever encountered a scene or a moment in your life that has been so wonderful that you've taken a photo of it? Has anyone ever taken a photo of something that they've been impressed with? There's a couple of you, honestly. Some of you, I've seen your Facebook accounts and there's too many selfies, okay? And uh, we, we need to move beyond that to some photos of scenery. A long, long time ago, before selfies were a thing, um, I were, Sam and I were snorkelling in these crystal clear waters, warm blue sea, absolutely heavenly. And as we were going along, um, I took, we had like these, before the days of sort of, digital cameras. I had one of those uh, old disposable underwater ones. I bought like from a fiver from Boots. And as we were going down, there was this turtle. Um, and they're 
flipping big things. And it was just sort of swimming elegantly through the crystal clear waters. And me, with my disposable camera, I managed to take a photo of it. And I was like, that is amazing. And now anybody at work, particularly, mentions... Oh, where should I go on holiday? I go, have you thought of this place? And then I bring out this picture of this turtle. And I've done it countless times when someone said, look at this, this is something that excited me and caused me to wonder and look at beauty. Even a decade later, I still enjoy that. Hopefully, all of us have this simple motivation of loving wonder. We love things that make us wonder. Um, A lot of the sort of BBC Nature series are with that in mind. Look at the wonders of creation. Look at the wonders of space. Drink in these sights and be amazed. The motivation that causes me to share a photo of a turtle or a landscape is the same one that should cause me to initiate worship and evangelism. It's not because someone's uh, hold me to account or that God in heaven is ticking off how many people I've talked to about Jesus or how many worship sessions I've attended. But it is supposed to be a natural thing where as we catch a glimpse of the wonder of God, Our heart just melts and we are compelled to do both. We are compelled to appreciate God's beauty together. And it was good to see a lot of you do that this morning with sort of arms and uh, waving and sort of closed eyes and that just intention of, God, you are pretty impressive. And then to do it with other people as they go, well, I'm thinking of going on holiday. Well, have you ever heard about Jesus? Because it's just a natural thing in our hearts that will come out where any conversation, and I, um, my sort of ability to do that sort of rises and falls. Um, but you have these moments where someone talks about this and you go, let me introduce Jesus in a brutal way. And then suddenly we're talking about something that they had no intention of talking about originally. But I can't help it because there is a beauty that I appreciate in God that I have to talk to him talk to others about. I was telling some people off at football yesterday and they just put the boot in because they were like, call yourself a Christian and I'm going to have to go to church and denounce you. But there is this understanding that this is not just football, that this is um, something run out of love for people and by a group that has no football qualifications whatsoever. And that is very evident in all our rules and the way we approach things. We have met the living God. If you're a Christian, you should be able to testify to that. If you have said, Jesus, I love you, and been baptised in water, there should be a foundation of that. I've encountered Jesus. I have seen something of him And I've just given in because it's more beautiful than anything else in all this world. And we should feel a compulsion to bear witness in church meetings and in the wide world. Now, it is sometimes hard and sometimes it can be a little bit uh, difficult. 
my uh, ability to talk successfully about Jesus to the point where people become Christians is not where it is, and I'd love it to be better. But that is not an excuse not to do it, and it is not a way to wheedle out of the greatest privilege we have. We have this privilege to talk about Jesus to other people. And incredibly and wonderfully and miraculously, some, and you know it's not all, because I've met a lot of people, I've got no interest in him whatsoever, but some will hear what you have to say and go, he does sound pretty good. That is something I'm interested in. You know what? I feel tingles on my skin when you say that. Something's happening physiologically when you talk about Jesus that I want to be drawn in, I want to know more. And then we get that incredible privilege of not just introducing them to a turtle that we found swimming in the sea, but to the Lord of Lords, King of Kings and God of Gods. Ask bit. In verse 10, Peter does some little bit of drama. He compares two positions. He says, before God chose you, you were neither chosen nor receivers of mercy. You were in a pity, pretty bleak position. If you've got a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. This is the last reading of today. Very famous passage. Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air whose spirit is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. That is behaving as riffraff in the gutter, throwing mud at each other. Like the, rest, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of our glossy hair and straight teeth, God loved us. No. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in transgression, transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Everyone say grace. And God raised us up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. Paul really wants you to know that you have not added or subtracted anything from salvation. He is making that very, very clear. It is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We were sinners. We were groping in the darkness, mucking up our lives and everyone around us, and we were destined to endure God's displeasure forever. That was our state, that was our destiny, that was what we could look forward to. However, Peter, 
as we read earlier on, and Paul, as we've just read, says, that is yesterday. That is no longer your fate. That is no longer your reality. That is no longer your inheritance. We have moved from a miserable people to a happy people. We have moved from a people that only know to do barbecues and go swimming on a Sunday morning when the real people know to go to church on a Sunday morning. We have moved into a people that are forgiven and that look forward even to death. And this, just as God told the Israelites, isn't due to us. All your attributes, however wonderful, have not caused God to smile on you favourably and get chosen. It is this mystical quality of God's grace that is impenetrable to reason and argument and scientific testing. It is something that God does wonderfully and divinely and we all look slightly quizzically at him but he says, don't worry, don't sweat it. We have no reason to be arrogant. We have no reason to be apathetic. We have no reason to despair. We have enjoyed the greatest of favours. And in this place of privilege, everything changes. We know a reason of peace. We know a reason for happiness. We know a reason to love. We know a reason to be generous and kind. We know a reason to be even more annoying than the Jehovah's Witnesses, which is an incredible thing. Please bow your heads. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we really thank you for choosing us. Yes. We've got no idea why. We can think of a lot of reasons why you shouldn't have chosen us. But Lord God, you did. And these words of grace and mercy are more precious to us than almost any other word in the English language. And Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be good at living in this reality of being a chosen people. Lord God, I pray that we would understand that you love us very much. That there are all sorts of privileges that comes with that. But that also we have responsibilities in being kind and loving and generous, as well as being pure and holy. Heavenly Father... Um, I pray that just as Jesus told that uh, guy that was freed from the demon, that we would go and tell. We would go and tell it on a Sunday morning. We would go and tell it in our cars and our homes as we sing along to worship music. And that we would even go and tell it to our family and friends and work colleagues. Because, man, they need to know. Lord God, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.